With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Welcome to show number 53. And it's with mixed feelings that I do this one. Because we're going to play parts of an old episode that we did, but for a sad reason. The longtime engineer of the Beatles, Jeff Emmerich, suddenly passed away recently. This is the fall of 2018. And he's somebody who became a friend through the years. Um, Jeff, as a teenager, as a teenager, right out of high school, his second day working at EMI Studios... They, they wouldn't put a kid, you know, on something important like the London Symphony Orchestra. So in his second day, he worked with the comedy producer, George Martin, with some joke band from Liverpool called The Beatles. So day two of his employment at EMI Studios on the Abbey Road, he's getting tape and recording this band called The Beatles, recording Love Me Do and watching how it's done there. Because it's all he wanted as a teenager. And again, like in The Beatles story that happens a hundred times, Exactly the person they need shows up at an exactly the right time. Jeff, in high school, you know, they asked, do you have an interest, a vocation? And he said, I want to know how audio is made, how it's recorded. I would like to be an audio engineer. And the guidance counselor in London just said, I have no idea what that even is. I don't know that exists. And he said, all right, well, I'll look on my own. And literally two weeks later, they get a call from me in my studios. You wouldn't happen to have a kid who wants to be an audio engineer, do you? We're looking for, a, you know, a young engineer. Our guy just quit. Just so happens somebody came to me two weeks ago. Boom, Jeff is hired uh, as soon as he graduates at 18. He walks in there. At 21, after the original, he was the assistant engineer. Uh, the original engineer, chief engineer, was a guy named Norman Smith who did the first couple of albums, right? So... After a couple of years, Norman Smith realizes he's never going to become the producer. George Martin isn't moving on. He's going to be the producer. Norman wants to be more than an engineer. So Norman leaves to produce some crazy band that would never succeed, not in a million years, some crazy psychedelic band called the Pink Floyd. Yeah, I don't know what ever happened to them either. Norman leaves to produce Pink Floyd. Boom, Jeff has been there. He's elevated to first chair. His first album, Revolver. And he's got to do Tomorrow Never Knows, his first day on the job, and he's going to talk about that. We interviewed Jeff last year, and he's just effusive and wonderful. And in this past week, we did a live tribute to John Lennon for his birthday from the Cutting Room here in New York City with my special guests and little Stephen Van Zant and Mark Rivera and Rich Pagano from a great tribute band, the Fab Foe, and these two young guys— Raheem and Amiri Taylor, they're called Black Rabbit. Internet sensations going out on their first tour. African-American twin young men who are 23, and because of their harmonies, because they're twins, the sound, they've got that Beatle harmony sound. It's just amazing. They just started singing in the subways, you know, like busking in the subways 
and it exploded on them, and they're off and going, so they joined me. So all these people offering thoughts and reminiscences about Jeff Emmerich and how he was so much more than just an engineer. He wasn't a guy who just plugged in wires. That's kind of what engineers do these days. They plug in microphones and set up the equipment and get a level, and then the producer and the band screw around with it to get what they want. No, Jeff Emmerich was a creative force. That's the question I asked on stage to Mark Rivera and to Mark Rivera and little Stephen Van Zant. Here we go. The one thing, and I'd love Stephen and Mark to comment on, is when you think of an engineer in a recording studio, a lot of times they plug in the microphones, they set up the equipment, if there's an, they put a baffle down, they get a level, and the producer tells them what to do. Jeff was a creative force was an artist in his own right to me making these records. Is that fair to say? Unequivocally. Yeah, and especially under those conditions, which people find it hard to believe, but, but uh, it was very, very uh, strict um, mm. you know, rules in those days, especially there at EMI. I mean, they were still wearing the lab coats. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you could only touch certain things. Yeah, it's sterile. The bands weren't even allowed in the control room most of the time. Right. You know, and. Um, and they were so strict, I mean, all the way to the end. I mean, they, they, they had the lock on the refrigerator when, when the Beatles were doing Sgt. Pepper. They, they wouldn't give them milk after, <laughs> after midnight because it was against the rules. You know, at, this is Sgt. Pepper. This is like how many millions of records later. Right. right? And so, specific mics were for specific purposes. Yeah. Vocal mics, or the ribbon mics, were only used for certain things. All of a sudden, Emmerich said, Put it in. Put it inside the drum. Very Blow expensive. It up. Very expensive. They're like $10,000 mics. Exactly. You know, in so, a bass drum. You know. And you know how everything that happened in the Beatles' life is serendipitous. The right thing happens. Jeff is 18, leaving high school, says, I want to be a, a sound engineer. And his high school guidance counselor says, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> a week later, they get a call from EMI Studios. You don't know anybody who wants to be a sound engineer, do you? We need a, a kid. Like, um, actually, yeah, this guy just, boom, he walks in, and he's the assistant. And his second day on the job, the second day on the job, showing you how to hit record here, go get the tape there, he's recording this crazy band from Liverpool called The Beatles doing Love Me Do. And that's where he starts. The chief engineer is a guy named Norman Smith, who is their chief engineer working with George Martin. After a couple of years, he leaves because he wants to get past being an engineer, so he decides to produce some crazy band that has no chance of making it called The Pink Floyd. <laughs> the, I don't know whatever happened the to Pink them. Floyd. <laughs> I, I don't know if they ever made it or not. <laughs> Norman leaves with Pink Floyd, and they leave Jeff. So Jeff, for the first time at 21 years old, is sitting first chair on a Beatles record. And the first moment that happens on that day when he is the new chief engineer that they knew him. What did he say, Mark Rivera? What did John Lennon say? Okay, I want my voice to sound like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> it's spinning it, right? Is that what? I want it to sound like the Dalai Lama on a mountaintop. On a mountaintop. On a, yeah. on a mountaintop. Yeah. I know, and he specifically said... I want to hang upside down. I want to hang upside. That's right. That's I want to hang upside down and spin me, you know. This <laughs> uh, is right. His instructions to the engine, this new kid, you know. Right. And he was serious, so spin me around, and we're gonna mic that, you know. And George Martin. <laughs> okay. George, George Martin yes, said sir. said, well, let's go get some tea and let Jeff sort it out, <laughs> because that's what a good producer would do is run away. And let the 21-year-old kid. So I asked when Jeff Emmerich was up the last, last month on uh, Q104.3. I said, Jeff, what happened at that moment? Did he really say, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama on a mountaintop? Here's Jeff Emmerich. 
That's right, that which was John's vocal sound. That's the only way John could explain things, um, and it was to sound like the Dalai Lama singing on a mountaintop 25 miles away from the studio. And my heart sank because it's my first day recording them, which was Tomorrow Never Knows. But luckily the saving grace was looking through the control room window and seeing that revolving speaker from the, from the Hammond organ, the Leslie speaker. So I thought, well, you know, if we can cut into the circuitry of that and put John's voice in, into it and hear John's voice coming out of a revolving speaker, that will give him what he wants. And of course it did, and he was just over the moon with it, you know? And that's why they needed Jeff Emmerich, not the most experienced engineer, because an experienced veteran engineer would say to him, I have no idea what you're talking about. You figure out what you want, and I'll do it. 21-year-old Jeff Emmerich says, hmm, the Dalai Lama on a mountaintop. Okay, that thing spins. And remember, Jeff's never read the handbook of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. So Jeff runs to the shop, gets a soldering iron, desolders the line from the amp to the speakers of the Leslie, puts a microphone to it, and it's not loud enough, so he puts a mic to the mic on the Leslie, runs that through the board and amplifies it, and you get tomorrow and never knows. Everybody who had to be there was there at the right time. The greatest producer in the world wouldn't have been able to work with the Beatles. You needed the comedy producer, George Martin, who knew arranging to work with him. And as John said, you know, he had the great sense of humor. Paul said he could work with us because we all laughed at the same jokes. And it wasn't just then. My friends, Black Rabbit, Raheem and Amiri Taylor, who were just getting going, they have that amazing brother harmony. They're twins, African-American twins from Far Rockaway. They were just on Breakfast with the Beatles, live with me, performing. And this is an emotional story. Listen to their story about Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, so actually, um, Jeff reached out to us um, the day before he passed. Um, he sent us an email. We, we were in contact with a couple of people who knew him. And um, we played an event on September 13th. And my friend Dan actually said, like, let me put you in contact with Jeff as soon as possible. We got an email from him, and um, we were super excited. And then the next morning, we saw Paul McCartney's Instagram post about his passing. And it was pretty rough. They are such great guys. They have such heart and soul. Can you imagine loving the Beatles and having the engineer who created all these sounds reach out to you and say, I'd love to work with you, and the next day you find out that he's passed? I understand. But, hey, their job to honor what he did is to make some great music and keep on playing. They're not the only ones. My friend Rich Pagano, who is on stage with us at the Cutting Room, the drummer for the Fab Faux and so many great artists here in New York, Rich and the Fab Faux had worked with Jeff Emmerich recording before. Here's Rich's story about being with Jeff Emmerich just hours before he passed. Yeah, well, we, uh, the Fab Faux did a show in L.A. on Saturday, and Jeff was there, and we had a wonderful hang afterwards um, and actually spoke about what we could do next. We, we had worked with him in the past, and, and he and I had a, a great conversation about um, creating some sort of a lecture series and some sort of a performance slash uh, Q&A, and he was really optimistic and real happy. There's a, a photo on my Facebook page of him with a big smile on his face. And so then he was doing a small lecture um, for veterans on the, mo the Monday night after the weekend, and I told him, I said, I'll be there. It was a small crowd, and he was very tired that night. And um, uh, he was still in good spirits, but I could tell that he was breathing heavy and... Um, he just looked a little bit sad, and uh, hours, actually it was Tuesday morning yeah. that he passed away. 
Um, yeah. It was stunning to me, as I said, we had just done this lecture at the Iridium, a Q&A, and we were cut short. We didn't do the last 20 minutes. And the last thing we said, we hugged and said, well, we have to finish this yeah. someday. And I believe we would. There's some beautiful tributes. Paul McCartney said, he didn't talk about his engineering skill. This is interesting. Paul said he had a sense of humor that fitted well with our attitude to work in the studio and was open to all the new ideas we threw at him. He grew to understand what we like to hear and developed all the techniques to achieve this. And I thought, what an interesting thing to say. Not, my God, the sounds, it's, he had a sense of humor. Because if you're going to work with the Beatles, you had to have a sense right. of humor. You couldn't be in a tight, stuffed shirt. That's not who they were. Well, I just want to say that a couple of things. Um, uh, uh, one thing he did say at his lecture was, uh, he said, they came in and I had a desk, meaning a mixing console, and I had a tape deck. And I had to, and microphones, and I had to make everything happen, their visions happen with those three items. And he said, it drove me nuts, but I looked forward to it. And the one thing I want to add for any geeks out there, when we worked with Jeff for a couple of days years ago, the Fab Faux, we did a session with him. He, was, he taught me uh, how to honor the electronics. He had me kick the kick drum extra hard on one uh, track that we did, and I kept asking, why is it, to myself while I was playing, why does he need my leg to come off? Because by the fifth take, <laughs> my, my leg was hurting. And I went back in the control room, and I said, why do you want me to kick the kick so hard? And he said, because you see that compressor right there? It only sounds good when you fatigue the tubes that are in it. Wow. So I need you to honor that gear before you're drumming. That's such a British sensibility. But it's genius to understand that. Our own engineer who's mixing this, Mitch, Glider, who I introduced him, he, he, I've mit, introduced Mitch to every rock star, how you doing, how you doing? He, I introduced him to Jeff when he came up, he almost passed out. And talked about what he did, because he didn't have Pro Tools, he didn't have 64 tracks. He had this basic equipment. There's a beautiful quote from Steve Naive, who's played keyboards with Elvis Costello forever. And it, Jeff engineered a lot of the Elvis things. Actually, let me just say, Jeff produced Imperial Bedroom. That's right. his record. Right. He said, quote, this is Steve, at the end of the day, he made you sound better than you ever sounded before or after. And I thought, what a tribute. Is there, there's no greater thing to say for a man who painted with sound and, and equipment. Yeah, that's it. No. And, and so you're, you're 21 years old, it's 1967, and they have fired the mop tops, and you've gone further than you've ever gone with Revolver. And now John Lennon comes in and says, we want to make an album that's never been made before. Sounds different from anything you ever heard. And that's, that's one way of starting. You're, you're you know, sitting there behind the desk for the greatest album ever made. One more quick story. And this is what Jeff told me backstage the other night. I said, all right, I know that you on Revolution Fast, you know, the distorted one, uh, the guitar sounds are incredible. I know you went right into the console. You didn't go into an amplifier. You took the John's cable and went right into the mixing console and then turn the volume way up. And he said, that's not all I did. I thought that would be enough. John came into the control room and said, my amp's not distorting enough. Get me more distortion. He put him in the console. Now John's in the control room. John then said, it's not distorted enough. Get me more distortion. So he took it out of, he, he went into the console, took a line out into another input in the console, turned that volume up. John said, not loud enough. So now he said, now I'm going to mess with this guy. I'm going to give him the worst sound he's ever heard. He took one more line, put it in the third part of the console, turned that up, turned the extra volume all the way up so it was over-distorted, just to say, you want something crappy? Here's something crappy. And Lennon said, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they hit record. So... 
here's in, in his words from the last time he was up, Jeff Emmerich, when John Lennon walks in and says, I want to make an album with sounds that have never been heard before. Here's Jeff. That's right. The first statement was we're never going to tour again because they tried to copy some of the uh, tracks live from Revolver and couldn't. And it was a disaster when they were on that last tour. Right. So they'd obviously had a meeting prior to coming to the studio. So we're in the control room and John said, we're going to make an album where we don't have to worry about the uh, sounds on the album or what we do on the, on, the, on the tracks. And George Martin was aghast. We all were. And um, John said, we're going to go and devise new sounds and we're going to do this. And, blah, blah, blah. and, we, and everyone looked at me. And I've got, but I've got nothing except a couple of stereotype machines, the same mixing console, and an echo chamber. You know, and it was just a question of just abusing the equipment. Look, there are engineers who are absolutely brilliant. There's an art form to knowing what mic goes with what instrument, where to mic it, how to mic it. Sometimes the, in, the artists know it themselves. A lot of times the engineer can help. Why don't you try this, see what you think? Try this sound, see if you like it. There's art to it. But then there are people like Jeff Emmerich, and I don't know if it happens anymore, where the engineer himself is a creative part of the team of making the album. Without further ado, here's an encore presentation of my entire interview with Jeff Emmerich when he was up here last year. Jeff, we never got to finish our last interview. It was cut short by the fire department, but somewhere, somehow, we will finish it. I don't want you to rest in peace. I hope you and John Lennon are working on an amazing album right now. Jeff wrote an amazing book about his experience called Here, There, and Everywhere, My Life Recording the Beatles. That's my Beatles Bible. Well, of course, course Ken, you know, and then hello to you um, again. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, th the thing was, there was only, you know, on those sessions, there were like the four Beatles, George Martin, me and my assistant, and the two roadies, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall. And it was a locked door session, so we were the only ones really privy to see the the, the construction of all, of all those songs, you know? Everything about it, call it serendipity, call it magic, luck, good fortune, but everybody who needed to be in that room, somehow the, nobody else should have been right. or could have, and how it, how it happens, you know, that John Lennon is playing the church fet with his teenage band and he's half drunk, forgetting the words, and his friend Ivan Vaughn brings his 15-year-old friend Paul and Paul says, down, you right. should meet him. Yes, yes. And then Paul gets nervous playing a lead guitar and says, you know what, you should meet my friend George. He's 14, but he can play guitar. Yeah, yeah. And then they play, and you know, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes is on the bill, and they love Ringo, and then they make a change, and then they go to Hamburg, and then somebody sees him in the cavern and says to Brian Epstein, you should see this band. And then he takes them on. And then he changes. And in Hamburg, they get a new look. Yeah. And then he can't get them a record deal. But they give him... Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right? He, he, they didn't get a single... He, they were turned down by everybody. That's right. And I remember, I, the story I sort of remember was that he, he, was, he was like... Brian was at the end of his tether. And, I th I, I, this is, and he was like... It was snowing and it was Christmas time and he was in London. And he was sort of traipsing down Oxford Street and with the snow with this the demo. And he went into that HMV record store that had a mastering room above it where a guy used to do playback lacquers. And it was a guy that was doing the mastering, liked it, and went over to the EMI's offices and said, you should hear this. And that's how it all started. It was that, that was that. He was desperate. He was just going to give up. And that, that's how it finished. A guy at the top of the HMV record store 
took yeah. it to EMI and said, you should hear this. Yeah. So they give it because they're, I still see it today in London. They think about, you know, the Northerners are chimney sweeps. Yeah. I, you know, and so, so these are four kids from Liverpool. We'll give yeah. it to the comedy producer. Yeah. We'll give it to the guy who made the Goon Show records what? with Peter Sellers yeah. and, and, you know, and, and Harry and those guys. Yeah. yeah. And you, in, the, in your book, Tell us a wonderful story about when you said you wanted to be an engineer coming out of high school. Well, right? was, you wanted to do audio, and nobody even knew what what that meant. No, I mean, it, I mean, it was, you know, ever since the age of six or seven, I liked music. You know, and I, I know my book. I say I had a toy gramophone. I used to play my grandmother's, you know, seventy eights on it, and some it was middle of the road, some was classical, and some was, you know, that that era of pop, I guess. But you know, I used to listen to the music and think, oh, I like that melody there, and I like that. And if I was involved with it, I would do this and do that. So from the age of seven, I just it was either that or fi or, or films or whatever. There was I kept switching backwards and forwards. Because when it was time time to leave school, I wanted to just be. In, I didn't know the process of making a record, you know, for real. Except I'd seen it done at some exhibitions, you know, that this is how they do it. There's a control room, there's microphones. Um, I didn't necessarily want to do that. I, that wasn't the attraction. It was just to be involved with recording music or making music, you know. Did you ever want to be a musician? I well, never I played, asked you that. No, well, I played piano because the, the weird thing was when I was six years old, we used to go to my uncle's house who had a piano. And for some reason, I could always play a tune on the piano without looking for the next note that followed the tune. So they think, well, you know, how's he doing that sort of stuff? Right. So anyway, so, that, so I'm self-taught, you know, on the, on the piano, you know. And But you never thought to yourself, well, I want to form a band or a skiffle group no. or anything like oh, that? No, only once. When I almost leave leaving school, I think we bought, bought a drum kit or something, <laughs> and that was the end of that, you know. So is it? Do I remember the story correctly? You tell your high school guidance counselor, "I want to work in a recording studio." That, that's right, and and by chance, it, it, it that went on for about five weeks, maybe six weeks. That's where I wanted to end up, and he tried to tell me, "This is impossible." I'd already written a letter to EMI and stuff, and got a rejection. You know, I wanted to be an assistant. So what happened in St John's Wood, where EMI Studios is? Uh, there's another school. And EMI had a contact with that school to the, the, the careers officer and said, we've got an opening for an assistant engineer at, as, at that time. And they said, well, we've got no one at our school that wants that job. So my careers officer knew this careers officer. So he phoned him and said, oh, there's an opening happened at EMI Studios. And he phoned me up and he said, you know, there's an opening at EMI Studios. And, you know, I've, I've got you the interview, you know. So I had the interview and two weeks later got the job. Again, for the thousandth time in this story, the, the luck, kismet, fate, pick the word you want to use, God's plan, pick any word you want. The, I, the chances of all of these things happening yeah. in sequence, yeah. like turning over 52 cards in a deck yeah. in the exact sequence as you call it, and because it had to be Jeff Emmerich, because an experienced engineer would never have done all the stuff that you did when you get into the studio. So you, you first get hired, you're how old? How old were you when you walk into, uh, uh, into EMI? Well, I was actually coming up to 16, so I guess I was 15. I told him I was 16. It's unbelievable, yeah. And the other, the other funny connection there was the connection between me and George Martin at that time was that George Martin, unbeknown to a lot of people, had a great sense of humor, although he was kept a straight face. And right. I, I had the same sense of humor, so we could look at each other on a session and inwardly laugh at each other. And so never was, sort of show it. So, that's right. So that was a, a, the, the, connect, the first connection with George, you know? So he sees this... 16-year-old kid, he thinks. But right away, he sees you're smart, yes. you're bright, and you care, and he, he loves it. Yeah, yeah, the... and you can keep your mouth shut. <laughs> ah, very good point. <laughs> so Norman Smith is engineering the yes. early Beatle albums, yeah, yeah. and Norman Smith finds this crazy psychedelic band called Pink Floyd yes. and leaves to go run Pink Floyd. Right. When do they say, Jeff, get behind the desk? 
Well, I, well that knowing that Normand was going to leave, right, I was then promoted five months, I think, prior to doing the Revolver album. And I took over Norm, Norman's artists, like Manfred Mann, uh, a lot of the... Anyway, all the artists that Norman worked with, I, I took them over because Norman was doing all the George Martin sessions. Got it. So you do, did you do Auditi and Pretty Flamingo? I did, did Pretty Flamingo, yeah. That was, in fact, that was the first record I, I made as an engineer, I believe. Really? Yes. Wow. And that's when I p first put the Dobro through a Fairchild 660. <laughs> and everyone was amazed at that. So anyway, five, five, five months later, then I'm called up into the manager's office, right? And I'm, I'm still, I'm doing George Martin's work, you know, his sessions. Right. Um, and, the, uh, and I went up there and uh, the manager said, oh, well, do, you know, George Martin's got something to say to you. He said, and I thought, well, I'm going to be in, in trouble. I don't know, probably not. He said, do you want to recall the Beatles? And because my heart sank, you know, and um, I was playing a little mind game. <laughs> but this little ball was going from yes to no, yes to no, yes to no, and it, and it kept going on no. Why? Why no? That no. Listen, so it went on to no, right? And then I and I'm thinking and thinking. I think, well, I've got nothing to lose here, right? And I let it stop on yes. So that was it. Again, thank God. Why? Why would you be hesitant to record the Beatles? Who were they at, to you at that time? No, because I was I was young and insecure. I mean, yeah. to be dropped in the deep end like that. I mean, also on that first session, I think. Paul was privy to the fact that I was going to take over from Norman, but I had a mic up and the others were in the studio. And I think George Harrison said to George Martin, where's Norman? And whereupon my heart went even further right, and down. And now it's beating my, and now no, you're getting it, sick. It, it right. went into my stomach, right? Um, and then obviously I could see that George was explaining, but I think Paul obviously knew, I think. So, you know, so I felt even worse. <laughs> The kid, the kid's going to be yeah, our engineer. I mean, engineer. I knew them because I'd been assistant engineers on a lot of their singles, like She Loves You and all the rest of so it. So you weren't you know? a stranger. Oh, they no, no, just no. never saw you sitting behind the no, mixing desk no, before. No, no, no. And as we find out in Jeff Emmerich's brilliant book, his first real moment is recording just a throwaway track, something, a little simple thing called Tomorrow Never Knows. Right. That's, seriously, the parallel to me is your first at bat, really, in a major league baseball game of consequence, is your is to pinch hit in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded and the team down yeah. by one, you know, in, in the first game of the World Series. They say, and John Lennon says, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama. Yeah, right. And you go, okay, Jeff, do it. Yeah. Crazy. Yes, absolutely. It's crazy to even throw somebody in. But, again, the, the fate, kismet, whatever you want to say, because you said you didn't really know the rules or care about them much, and – one thing you get from the book is how stuffy uh, the engineering was that EMI Studios. Well, yeah, well, 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 absolutely, because the other, pro you know, I'm a young kid there, and all the other engineers were like in their thirties, forties. There was one like Peter Vince who was a bit, a lot, quite a bit younger, um, and they'd been recording sessions like you know uh, for forever, doing a certain way, you know, and it was easy. And then I come along and change change the way you do it. And then there was little meetings amongst the other engineers. I said, you can't do this, Jeff. You know, we've been doing it this way for so long. You know, and they, they didn't like it. <laughs> they didn't. But you weren't there to make them like it. You were no, there to absolutely. please the boys and George, and that's what counted. See, to me, that's the difference is you were loyal to the band and the project. Right. The other engineers, and listen, we've known them through radio from time to time. If you, and you know, Mitch, our guy here who does all our live Breakfast right. in the Beatles broadcasts, He'll bring extra equipment that's not assigned to him, and he'll just kind of he'll wink at me and say, "I've I've got a little I've got this I've got a little processing." And because Mitch says, if I'm engineering, whether anybody knows it or not, whether you mention my name, the way it sounds on the air, 
I take full responsibility for that. So I want to have everything I need. Whereas I uh, might be another engineer says, sorry, it wasn't assigned. We don't have it. Now I respect that, but you have to have a certain passion mm. to say, no, when, when Jeff needed extra microphones as it's getting bigger and bigger, it's one of my favorite stories about you running into studio one to the orchestra. Would you tell that story? Remind me about you having to steal microphones from the orchestra, from studio one and them yelling at you. That you uh, have the proper number of microphones in Studio Two. Yes, I, that's, and that's, that's you right. Actually, yes. Literally in the session, making the violins double up. Going, yeah, yeah you switch with it. That's, no, no, I did. That's true. That's true. I, I mean, I mean, I, I yeah. I mean, it, it was hard. You know. Here's the thing that's weird to me. I get that in 1962, three, four. Maybe you don't get really what the Beatles are. Maybe by '65, you see how it's selling, but you think it's a flash in the pan. How? On God's Earth, by 1967, does EMI and the studio, Abbey Road Studios, not know what it is they've got in that studio, what's being created? Even if you hate the Beatles' music, you're looking at sales figures that have never happened before. They've reset the bar. The paradigm is different compared to their success. Why would anybody say don't take an extra mic or no, you can't afford an orchestra. Well, I mean, that, that, was, that was what used to happen. It was a, 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 the, the management not understanding the reality of what was there. I mean, the value of it. I mean, even to the fact when we did the orchestra on a day in the life, right? Yeah. Um, I think it was John or someone said, well, let's have a 90-piece orchestra. We want to have this you know, cacophony, right? So um, then George Martin's got a budget for Sergeant Pepper. And George said, well, EMI won't pay for that, right? So Ringo then said, well, why don't we get a 45-piece orchestra and put it on twice? So, But what we actually did, we laid it on five times, that orchestra of 45. Um, and if, event, they, without them knowing, but eventually they, they did know and they did get paid for those full, though, 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 that five... You know, for those, extra passes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. But there's actually five tracks of orchestra, and that was the first time we'd linked two, 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 two four-track machines together. Really? The second four-track had four tracks of orchestra on it. And the, the master four track, I had all the rhythm and vocals and one track of orchestra, which was completely in sync. So we tried to, to, to just run free will the, the other orchestra type with, but with feeding the motor with the same frequency, uh, you know. The to try to sync yeah, it up. Yeah, and just put grease park marks on the tapes and one was play, one was record and do it together. So it sort <laughs> of stayed in, in. The mono mix is perfect when the orchestra comes in. There's one little, because uh, I was cross-fading the orchestra, orchestral tracks, there's one little bit in the stereo mix where it's you can, I can detect where one of them goes slightly out of sync, but on the mono, it's perfect. Really? Yes. Jeff Emmerich, my special guest in the studio here at Q1043. Um, this masterwork of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, that's still remarkable. Producer Andrew, who's with me, who's been part of our podcast. And right. One of the things I love knowing what somebody in their 20s thinks of this music that you created you know, 50 years ago, and especially because Andrew's a musician right. and a bass player in the band, I love his take on it. And I said, you know, let me, I can step back. We can talk forever. Your thoughts about Jeff, about how do you record? You're, he's recording albums. They're just getting going. Or your questions about Pepper in, in general. Well, about Pepper specifically, um, did you ever work on something that took that long before or since? No, that was the longest. It was because I, I added up the hours and it was 700 hours. So that over three months, I think it was. So that's like the longest. Did you ever wonder, were they ever going to finish it? Uh, I, 
not not no not really because you know again the, the EMI want a finished product and as we know you know Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane was supposed to go on the album and they EMI wanted a single and those, as you know those two two tracks were, were put out as a single but people say to me oh they should have gone on the album but when you got to think about this if they had gone on the album right there would be two tracks on the album even a day in the life or whatever that wouldn't be there because there was only going to be 14 tracks Right. So two tracks would not be on the Sgt. Pepper album as we know it if if Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane had gone on the album. Because for anybody under 30, please understand, an album is a finite piece of vinyl that has recorded music on it. You can't simply add more music. There's a limited amount of music and time. that could be put out and in time. time. That's it, was, it. it was 20 minutes aside for the loudest. Right. So, so Pepper's about 42 minutes long in its entirety. Right, and it can't be longer than that. No, it be, really can't. No, no, it'd be quieter. The album would be quieter. Right, right, because you have to make the groove smaller. Somebody yes. mastering actually cuts the grooves yes. into the vinyl. Yeah, yeah. So you knew that at some point you were going to get to 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Right. No matter how long it took, and you would have to press vinyl. Be 40 minutes well, of music. I, yeah, I mean, but we'd, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd sort that out with the different times of the tracks mm. and work gradually work it out, you know. And, you know if it was, anyway, it worked out at 42 minutes, which was fine, Yeah. Now, um, you, you said you were self-taught. Do you think, or a, as like a music, or musically self-taught, right, do you right. think um, you think your job would have been easier if you were a more trained or experienced musician when you started? Not when I started, but I sort of miss that now, believe it or not. In fact, I, it was a band I was working with like four years ago, and I went to, to the community college to learn a little bit more about writing music and stuff, just yeah. to refresh my mind. Right, right, right. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that you've had to relearn just with the the changes in in the industry. So, well, I try. Well, I try not to. I mean, I I can't. I, no, I can't handle a Pro Tools rig. The assistant does that. And what you, what happened when all this technology stuff started to happen? In my mind, when I'm mixing music, it's like a palette of colors, right? And it's tonalities. And if I'm if they're running through the song, you know, on mass in the studio, I pick up on a certain color, a tonality that I like. And I build all the other tonalities around that, so it could be a, a, a dark, a dark tone or a light tone or whatever. But all the complementary instruments are going to co go. That's going to be the dominant. Um, so I, I, all the technology, I, my mind process doesn't work with the technology, so it interferes with it. Even mm. when Flying Faders first came out, I right. couldn't handle it. Really, I still won't use I them. To, per it's se. tactile. I have to have my fingers on. I, I won't. I, I do. This is it's a proper. Mix, no, and the machine's not doing it, you know, and I don't trust it either, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, even that threw me. So I, the technology was not a, a great plus for me, in the sense of my, the way, you, you know, that I, 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 you know, hear music and comprehend mm -hmm. music and mix music. Mm -hmm. It's an interference, if anything, you know, because as you know, everyone says, oh, you know, I've got an R R three one ninety, and I've got this and a Z wheel three one two, and I, I'm got a clue what they're talking about, <laughs> but that's all they talk about, you know. Right, they don't really talk about the content. They don't talk about music anymore. Right. And I remember there was the APRS show in England. It must have been late not 60s or 70s. And um, one year we, we talk about, oh, did you hear the bass sound that so-and-so so got on that record? Did you hear that drum sound? Did you hear that guitar sound, that vocal sound? All we talked about was sounds and music. The next year, when the technology stuff, all they talked about was numbers and pieces of equipment. The music was never mentioned. 
That's so sad. And you know what? That's a direct reflection when you hear what pop music sounds like today. Yeah. And when I say it all sounds the same and everybody says, well, you're too old. Like, No, I'm not too old. I still have good ears. It is literally all the same. If you put it up on the desks, it yeah. all looks exactly the same. painting by numbers, Ken. Yeah. There's no individual brush strokes there, which is the fun part. You know? Right. Right. I'm Somebody finding create, a groove. And I'm going to create something new. I remember going through a period with, with, with McCartney and I'm thinking, everything's been done. I can't create anything new anymore, you know? And then suddenly you do. You get a sound that you'd never be created before. And everybody's just on fire yes. and you're yeah, alive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when you, it's funny, when you get to something like you recorded Ebony and Ivory. Right. Right, so you've got Stevie Wonder and Paul. Yeah. And you sitting at a desk. Yes. Say, where's this going to go? What yeah. are we going to do with yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, it's not an accident that that much talent in the room, you included, right. creates music that lasts a lifetime. Of it course. It takes a certain, you could get any kid to push play, to push record, yeah. and, and sound will come out. But like you said, there's a subtlety, there's a beauty to it. Yes. Like a great, to me, like a great cinematographer. Yeah, yeah. When you see a movie, you know, you can, you can see the actors, but that perfect painting. Well, that's right, because I always compare it with the visual side, because it's like m making a film. Yeah. You know, you've got the band in the studio, they're doing the song, and you're setting up the scene for the film, and you're going to record it, you've got a take on it, you film it, you've got your cameras or whatever, and you're zooming in and zooming out. So that's the visual side of it, you know? Um, that's the only way I can sort of expl explain it. Of all the remarkable things on that album called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, and people say, well, it's not a real concept album. And I said, no, it is. Listen to it again. The Beatles come out on stage. You know, you have these sound effects of a crowd waiting that right that he had from Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. That's right. And the Beatles come out on stage, and then they tell us the story that 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper taught this band to That's play. Funny. Let me introduce you to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. And conceptually, the Beatles have left the stage. That's right. And now there's a roar from the crowd right. and a laugh. Yes. And we hear some French horns. Yes. And a different band now That's is right. in the studio, and it sounds different. That's right. Well, the, the discussion on brilliant. that. Well, the discussion on the album was, I mean, but it, which was a personal discussion within a control room. You know, you're, you're in the audience and you're watching a stage show, and that's what it was all about. And all these different acts come on stage. And you mentioned about the little laugh, right? Yeah. Well, the, that the, the the in joke for that was, well, should we get rid of it or not? Because it was in that audience track. Right. Um, no, let's get over because Billy Shears is going to come on stage soon, right? And he trips up and falls over. That's exactly so that, what so I that, saw in my mind. That's, that's exactly so, what I so, saw. So that's what the laughter was for. Jeff, I can't believe you said that. It's exactly what I've always heard, seen in my mind as a kid, kid is that somebody does a little pratfall. That's right. And that's why the audience laughs. That's right. My God, yeah. that's so, that's yeah. the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. And they take off. And then here's Billy Shears, and he that's gets right. the first solo. Yeah, that's right. And that's what you're what's sitting in an audience watching a stage show.
it's just, no one ever, ever even dreamed no. of creating an album with a band who we haven't seen toured. And all the rumors, the Beatles are done. Be yeah, we think yeah. the Beatles broke up. Yeah. And what Paul McCartney <clears throat> said, don't say a word. Nobody say a word. Don't tell them. He said, we just sat back. Oh, just wait. Just yeah. wait. You'll see. Yeah. Just wait. And then this wild, and of all the brilliance of that album, of the the harp on she you know she's leaving home and I I know George Martin always he hated the harp didn't he because he wasn't recording that he didn't write that arrangement no he didn't write it no do you like the harp oh yeah absolutely because I tell you for why because it's got that little repeat on it and that's like the only rhythm section is the harp right the do, 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 do. That, that that carries the beat through that whole song it's the only rhythmic instrument and then the most perfect harmonies yeah. any three guys ever did it's yeah. Just, and and to and one part of that vocal, don't forget the the echoey voice. Yeah. When we only there was no tracks left, so they we used a, a U forty eight was one pull one side and John the other, so we had to record both vocals live at that point. Did you really? Yes. We gave her. Yeah, us. yeah, yeah. That's not on a separate track. It was on the same track as. Jeez. No. Yeah. And it's perfect. It's yeah. perfect. I'm not telling you anything you don't yeah, know. I think it's John just just back, backed off or whoever <laughs> pulled back off, and we put reverb on on whatever we did, you know. It's it's incredible that yeah. you to to anybody who's under thirty. I don't think you understand the world that we lived in. Even myself in radio, if I were editing this interview, what I would do after we would finish is get a sandwich, and then I have a, I sharpen my grease pencil, and we have a, a literally a, a pencil that was a, a wax, a grease, right. and then I would mark the places where I want to edit, and I would take a fresh razor blade and cut it and put the piece of tape around my neck. And then I would make my next edit, and I would physically take another piece of adhesive tape, join it together, and listen to my edit. That's how Jeff pretty much cut these entire oh. albums and how we did radio until this world of digital. You know, edit in, edit out, cut. This was a physical, mechanical thing that took a great deal of time sure. to do right. And Jeff did this. With his pair of magical brass shears. Yeah, that's right. Tell them. Yeah. About, do you mind? Well, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the most the most hardest edit was the t to editing the two versions of Strawberry Fields together because, as we know, we recorded the track once, and then we mixed it, and then John went away with it, and he came back and said uh, about a week later, I think, he said, I "I'd like to re-record it. I want it to be more harsh, more, you know, more aggressive. More, I want orche orchestra on it and stuff." So we recorded the other version. And then he took that away, and then he came back and he said, you know, I really like the first half or the first, it actually is the first minute, basically, of the first recording, but I like the, the rest of the second recording. But the thing was, they were in two different tempos and two different keys, although I think they were semitone apart. So anyway, cut a long story short, we got the mixes, and they both mixed tapes were on very, on very speed on the tape machines. So I was able to, I think I sp sped up the or slowed down the first half to match what the tempo was going to be over a period of a minute. No so one, did you so physically, manually, uh, you uh, slowed As it down. was going, uh, going down, it was either going fast or slow, I can't remember it. And uh, to match up the, the tempo of the second recording, right, and to bring it into the same, same key. Uh, and then I found my edit point, and then with my little brass scissors, it wasn't like a, a 45 cut. It had to be like a crossfade cut. So I had like a... Um, little template thing I marked two little marks and did a line and the, the cut was like that so it's like a crossfade wow um and then we then so we stuck it together because it's almost impossible whether it was going to work or not right um, and you only get one real shot at it well well you, you sort can, of you can dub it off yeah, but yeah um, we were, I mean we were recording that little bit to go in there um uh, and it worked and uh it's actually on let me take you because I'm going it's on the word going it's on going Ooh. it's on the word going where the actual cut is Cause I'm going. Yeah, it's to. on the going, and it's about a minute in. 
and that's where the edit is. Okay, so you can it... just about. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I can slightly hear it because the, the, the slight, the, the. Well, I, no, I'm yeah, but you're say, the one with the scissors, so you no, would hear it. We wouldn't but you hear can't, it. But, no, you can't hear it. But now we'll listen but for it. But it was just magic. Unbelievable. Just yeah. unbelievable. And, you know, when John left the room after saying, well, I like the first half and the second half, he basically well, you know, you can do it. But it was impossible, but it works, <laughs> you know. Well, and the word <laughs> no that does, did not exist in their vocabulary. Good point. No, you couldn't. You could. It, there was no answer when if you can't say no. There's always a way of doing something. It seems like a lot of the brilliance of your career came from people asking you yes. impossible things yeah, yeah. and not giving you enough equipment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, you're absolutely right. Andrew's right. If if you had all the money in the world, you don't have to create all this stuff. No, of course you not. You just write a check and bring in another studio. Yeah, but I mean, but the other misconception is I'm still at that point. I've only got the eight input mixing console. Uh, with no selectable equalization on the desk, right? Three or four stereo tape machines. At that time, I were on four track, an echo chamber. And sometimes, so what do I do? I'd use the bathroom at night as an echo chamber just to get a certain tonality on something, you know? <laughs> so um, you would put the speaker or the person? Yeah, I'd just get a speaker in the bathroom and put a mic up just to get any, any difference in sound, you know? That's all I could do. There's this misconception because of that, that book about recording the Beatles, right? Yeah. It's like... It's like five bits of equipment in there overused on recording the Beatles, you know? Yeah. And that thing about that curve bender, you know, which they came from the mastering room with all those selectable frequencies on. Yeah. One night, I wanted to get a specific sound on some brass, I think it was, and I got one of the maintenance engineers to get one of those curve benders and take it out of the mastering room and bring it down into the control room. And that had never been done before because it was not allowed. So I used it that night, and someone snitched on me, and I got into trouble the next day. <laughs> I'm serious. I don't How do you get into trouble making music well, for the greatest selling band the company has ever had in its life? There's no such thing. If they had half a brain, you go, Jeff, give us a laundry. Here's a blank sheet of paper. Give us a laundry list of what you need. No, not at all. That's insane. No, I, I, all I had was still the two Altec compressors, and I think I had two... Fairchilds, and if I could get another Fairchild in, I would from another control room that night. And that's all I had. They, it's, I swear, they never got it. When I heard uh, Abbey Road, we were talking about it, when Abbey Road was finally finished and released, when they looked at the cover, I'm told the, the head of EMI London said, well, their name isn't on the cover, and there's no title on it. How are people going to know it's the Beatles if they just see the picture? We, I want the name the Beatles on it. Yeah. Like, you, you must be joking. <laughs> You're, you're joking. It's 1969. The four of them are crossing, well, the zebra crossing in front of the studio. You, you're, you have to be joking. That's how thick you are. That's how bloody thick exactly. you are. Exactly. Exactly. It's astounding yes. to me that you worked in this situation and were able to make this magic. Yeah. Um, Jeff Emmerich, my yeah. guest here at Q1043. Um, as we're going through Pepper, of all the magic that you've done, the most remarkable work that has never, ever even come close to being duplicated or equaled is a piece called Sgt. Pepper's Reprise, A Day in the Life. Right. That stands on a shelf that I'm just telling you, no engineer, no studio person has ever, ever touched. They've never even been able to get near it. No, I know. You know I'm telling you the truth. Well, I mean, I know that night when we'd put the orchestra on, you know, because some of the Rolling Stones were there, and John said, oh, let's have like a party in the studio and doing the orchestra. And you know, they've got all those funny noses on, and, and the orchestra had to have tuxedos, and they, which they objected to. And <laughs> the score was like you, there's over 24 bars. There's one note written there, and the end note's written there on the 23rd bar, whatever. 
And you, the instruction to the classical musicians is, you know, go from that note to that note in 24 bars in your own time. We can't do that. <laughs> it has to be written. And then there was like, a, tw there was like a 20 minute discussion with George Martin and the orchestra. And then Paul stepped in and had a discussion as well. Eventually they, 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 they did it. And, um, Anyway, that night when we'd done the orchestra and Richard and I, my sister, Richard Lush, we'd set up a rough monitor mix in number one um, of, the, of what we, we created that night. A few of the stones came into the control room, which is not a very big control room. Uh, and a few other, I think a couple of the monkeys were there we, when we played it. And it was like at the end of the playback, there was absolute silence and everyone was open mouthed. And it was Ron Richards sitting on the floor by the mixing console. I'll never forget it. Ron used to produce the Hollies. And Ron had his head in his hands. And he said, I'm going to give the business up. <laughs> no, he did. He was sincere and, and honest. But that night, it was like going from a square black and white picture, although it was mono, into Cinemascope Technicolor. And, it, you know, shivers just ran. You'd never, ever, ever, ever heard anything like it in your life. And the drum sound was going to be the best drum sound ever. And what I did with the drum sound, I took the bottom skins off the, off the toms and put mics in little glass jugs wrapped in a tea towel underneath all the toms to get the... The resonance of the drums. What made you even think of well, that? Well, because I was, the, the, it was going to be the best drum sound ever, and <laughs> and you uh, you can hear the attack from the toms, and you get this tonality tonality of the, of of the you know the the sound of the toms, and it's uh, at the it time is. it was like incredible. No one had ever heard drums like that at that time. It's sheer genius, yeah, and I, I, yeah. I've said it to your face. I'll say it behind your back. I'll say it to anyone in any interview. Nobody ever created sounds like that because nobody ever took small glass jars, put a tea towel over it, took the bottom skins off a of tom, and put a mic underneath it so Ringo's drums would never sound like that in, in any other way. And it's just boggles the mind. You've taken yeah. here, so we have the Sergeant Pepper's reprise right. of, the, of the original, right. Which, right, which was played live in yes, the studio. Yes, basically be because they were going on holiday on the Tuesday and the only time we could get in the studio was on a Saturday, I believe it was, and it was the only studio available was number one, which is a cavernous studio. Right, that's where the orchestras would go. Right, all the, and all the, all the you know, classical stuff. And all right. The, yeah, right. So the only thing I could do to get, this, to get the tightness was to put them as close together. First of all, build another little booth with the, the, you know, the baffles from right. other studios in, in, near to the control room end of number one. So it was like a little studio within a studio. Put them so close together that, that the time lags between instruments was very minimal between, you know, the mics. Right. Um, and just record it. And the energy on that reprise is just it's it's mind-blowing. When you guys hear it and people say it's the same thing again, no, 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 listen to it. That count off. One, two, three. Oh, well, right. Uh, absolutely. That was the energy. That's the Beatles playing live yes. in the studio again for the first time in yeah. God knows how long. Yeah. And yeah. it explodes. Yes. And then as that fades, here's John with an acoustic guitar yeah. taking us right back into this dreamy state of like a, it sounds like a waking dream almost, yeah. you know, waking yeah. up. I read the news today. No, I know. And okay, so if you don't mind being, me being a geek about this, this is for no, all of us, no. the alarm clock. Well, that that was by chance. The, the The alarm clock was there because there were the get the twenty four bar gaps, right? And we didn't know what was going to go in those gaps, which you know, when they're the orchestras in those gaps. Um, so Mal Evans was asked just to count the bars, which was one, two, because you can hear it in the mix. I couldn't right. get rid of it. It was I know it's up. very. It's just a little I, bit. I couldn't get rid of it because it was picking up on Ringo's conga mic or whatever. And when he, the alarm goes off. 
which are on the like the 23rd or 22nd bar to alert the orchestra or whoever's doing in the gap that the last bar's coming. So, of course, when and we didn't know at that time that Paul's Woke Up, Got Out of Bed song was going to go in there. Paul just mm. said, oh, I've got an up at the start of a song. I think that might fit in there. So the alarm clock was coincidence because you hear the alarm clock go off and then it got woke up, got out of bed. And that wasn't planned that the alarm clock was going to relate to the got up, got out of bed. For the thousandth and first time, again, an accident becomes yeah. the signifying, I, the ident, the identifier yeah. that goes from John's song to Paul's. Yeah. Uh, somebody spoke and I walk into a, dream, into a dream and now we're back in and now we dream back yeah. into John's yeah. dream again. Yeah, and both of those vocals are on the same vocal track. So what we had to do when John did his, ah, that coming yeah. out of the word dream, put, we had to say to Paul, can you keep the word dream short? Because if we'd had gone any further with it, it would have wiped John's vocal because John's vocal was already there on the ah part, you know? That's incredible. So Paul kept dreams because Paul would really wanted the dream to be a little longer, like a dream, right? Right. But he couldn't do that because it would have wiped John's vocal. So he sings, I went into a dream, a dream. Boom, and you hit stop immediately. Well, yeah. <laughs> so Rich, Rich, because Richard, of course, you know, I mean, I guess he might have put a grease mark there, but yes, it was dream stop. And it's <laughs> but it's mechanical drop-ins and drop-outs at that time. It's not instant like today, you right. know? Jesus, Jeff, I, yeah. it's amazing it happened. Yeah. You you were tr you were creating so here's what I'm sure of. I'm sure of you were creating something that was so far beyond the technology that you were given at the time. Right. You were creating something. It's like shooting a cinemascope movie with a little film school yeah. camera yeah. and a cassette mic and yet you did it and the craziest thing is the technology is leaps and bounds ahead of what you had and still nobody's gotten no. to what you did. No. No. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Jeff Emmerich, my special guest here at Q1043. Here's the 50th anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle. The zombies touring packed houses across the entire world. What they've done, I've heard it, tremendous. Uh, the vinyl of it is tremendous. And the big story is the remastered Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band that Giles Martin did. Uh, it's on CD. It's a DVD surround. And there's a new, in the in the big box set, is a new album about it. Jeff, I've, I've read everything, is not a fan of what was done. And the thing about Jeff is, as opposed to a troll or this or a Beatle fan or me, you're the man who engineered it. Right. What is it about the this remastered that doesn't come close? What what is what is wrong? Isn't the right word. What if? Okay, let me let me rephrase that whole question. If we want to hear the most pristine version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. What should we buy? What should we listen to? Well, if you can acquire it, the mon original mon mono vinyl. The original mono vinyl. Yes, and what I listen to now is the the mono CD as as the definitive because the mono mixes were the definitive mixes because we we they were recorded for mono and we listened to the, all those recordings through from one loudspeaker, and that's why which was which was hard to get you know um, perspective on different instruments to relate and so forth. Um, so the, the mono versions are, the, are like the ones to have, and I normally play the mono CD. And again, there's no such thing as a mono CD, right? Because you've it's got a, speakers, you've right? got a left and right with the same signal. And I've noticed that a few times when we've played, the, you know, in, into gatherings of students or whatever, and we've, we've yeah. played it back. There's something funny with the phase, which which might be the timing between the left and the right with the same signal. So the easy way out of that is just to take one side and play it through two speakers. Then there's no problem. But, oh. I've, I've, but I've heard, which I appear to be little 
minute timing errors, which may because there's no proper center, and I hear a little shift. Yes, because it wasn't meant to be heard through two speakers. It was meant to be heard through but, one speaker. But you've got a left and a right with the same signal. So there's no such thing as like a mono vinyl. There's like a, no such thing as a mono CD because you have to have a left and a right. There's no one sound source. So I, I picked up on that a couple of times. I so. never even thought about it. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Andrew and I were talking about that, about mono versus stereo. And, you know, in the early days, you know, the stereo versions of Beatles albums, but who had a stereo no. in England in 1964? No, it was, we were like, well, I say five years behind the times. I mean, we were, you know, maybe not five years, but stereos w w was there for a cap. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ca uh, classical recordings and nothing else. And I remember being there when we started to do, I think it was called Studio 2 Stereo Sound to give the impression of left and rights, which was the advent of pop stereo. Right. Right. Wait, I mean, I remember just album buying an album. That was a big selling point in stereo. Yes. You went to the record store as a kid. Do you want the mono or also, the stereo version? Yeah. And, you know, when you were a teenager, you save up your money, you get your first stereo system, and now yeah, you can yeah. buy albums in stereo. Um, so I was talking about it with Andrew about how you wound up doing two different mixes, right? That was your question. Yeah. Um, um, yes. I'm not sure to what you're referring. No, you, you had said to me you had wanted to know how much time was spent on stereo. Oh, right. W was there a big difference? Yeah, we were talking yeah. about that yesterday. Was there a big difference in the time you spent on the mono mix versus the stereo mix? Well, I mean, if we're talking, because we, well, we raised this point early, yeah. earlier on, the, we, the Beatles were always present when we mixed the, the mono version. It was always mixed normally at the end of recording that track. It, we didn't save it to the end of the album. We didn't like spend like a week or two weeks mixing mono mixes. It was done, at, which was great because if you recorded the track, and you start to do the mix and a slight thing, oh, maybe we should just have done that and you could do it. And everyone was just over the moon at the end of that mix and it was put in the can and it was, you didn't touch it, it was finished and everything else. So we'd finished like the last mono mix and um, oh, for, 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 for talking about that. And then we the stereo had to be mixed, right? Well, we were mixing from four track um, and we've got our notes. So it's a question of levels and potting and so forth and maybe some tweaking of the fourth track that's got a bit of everything on it, percussion, guitar, lead voice, so you're panning, whatever, right? And because all the instruments are on, a lot of the instruments on one track at a time, you know, it's very diverse, that stereo mix. And then what, so we spent exact, as much time as we needed to do the stereo mixes. We, it was the monos that gave, the attention was given, but we knew the attention that was into the monos was no, noted, and it was notation, and we knew exactly what to do. And it, I, I mean, on uh, was it Good Morning, Good Morning? On the a lot of the sound effects were sent from stereo machines because there was no room on the four track to lay some of the sound effects in. So it would be three stereo machines with like chicken clucks and right. horses galloping and so forth. Because we love the sound of the animals chasing each other. That, that's right. Across the room. That's right. Um, and John just said to me, he said, well, we'll start whatever. I forget what it starts with. The the, um, the dog chases the cat and the cat's right. chasing the bird and the lion's chasing the what the horse or whatever. Yeah. So it's all, there's a way, there's a sequence of that. 
But I think it's on the on when it goes into that into that guitar coming out of that. Yes. On the mono, there's three clucks on that rooster, and I think on the stereo there's only two. But that's because it was sent from a stereo machine, and you know the grease. It was mechanical starting where it's going to come in. It's one of those things that happened, you know. Yeah. Nobody can. And you hear the difference sometimes. Like I have these CDs of stereo and mono, and I'll I've done this. I sit there with a, a nice little a bourbon. And I'll sit there and go mono version, stereo version. Yeah. I'll jump ahead, and you go back and forth, and I hear the differences. It's not that it, it when you really sit down and listen to it, you hear how much difference here and there, certain sounds, tonalities, things change. Well, well of course, I mean, it, because it was all sp supposed to come out of one loudspeaker. You weren't supposed to hear the 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 the, the, the stronger changes of tonalities. They blended together. In, in one blender. Right. Now you've got right. two blenders, you know? Right, and there's, and there's fruit in one, and there's... That, that's uh, yeah. right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Andrew, when you guys are recording, I mean, they've, they've just gotten going, they're working on a new album. When, when you think about the balance of your instruments and things like that for your band, what, what goes into your process? I mean, you, you're not, you don't have a wizard sitting there in a control room. You're trying to make the best you can, you know, as kids in a band do their own. Well, I always have to ask myself, is this the time to ask for more bass? <laughs> He's the bass player. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we, we think a lot about it. We, we had just got a master back the other day, and we think it sounds so good compared to what we put on, on our album that we previously had. But it, mm. it's a lot. We put a lot of time into getting the right drum sounds. Right. Um, on this one, we uh, this, this song that we we're working on, we... We put microphones up all over the studio um, to just see what kind of a room sound we could get. And, you know, we put the work into writing the song, but we want it to sort of, it's almost like you write it again when you're recording it. And then, Good point. And then when you're mixing it, you're sort of, maybe it's like a fine tuning sort of process. Yeah, because, yeah. well, yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because, you know, all, all our finished sounds and reverbs were on the instruments at the time of recording. We didn't like add them on the mix. Right, there was no such thing back then. Yeah, well, see, you, 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 we would normally reamp that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so that's one, one, the way we used to work. We just say, oh, we'll do it on the mix, we'll do it on the mix. We never did it with that, because what used to happen, you'd do your basic rhythm track with all its finished sounds on, and then you knew you were going to possibly overdub an organ or something else on the next track to go in a certain part. And when it came to doing the organ, because of what we'd done on the basic rhythm track, the organ didn't tonality fit that. So it might be piano or harpsichord instead of the organ. So all your overdubs actually all work. There's nothing superfluous in any of the overdubs. It's like, yeah. It's like, something that our engineer Mitch said to me that he, he our, our engineer Mitch who worships this man Jeff Emmerich and he said the one thing that I always think about is how they had to do it without a Pro Tools desk is he said Jeff had to always be thinking six seven moves ahead yes about what are the next four layers that are yeah, coming that's because right. it even if I do this perfectly for what we have now it's not going to balance with the next four tracks that yeah, I have I'm to not, hopefully down. it would but it didn't sometimes you know yeah. that's the way that was worked out but the, getting back to that bass and drum thing I mean I the bass and drums are the backbone of any record to me and I'm always going for the best bass I mean it's all normally I I always bring the bass I, I get the bass sound what I'm going to do for the mix but I normally start fit it in at the last in, as the last instrument so it's mm. like the loudest thing on the record and it's it's depth doesn't and its sound doesn't conflict with the bass drum bottom end and so forth, you know. And the only thing I I, I know you talked about, you know, mic in the room and stuff. I've never ever ever had any success in putting drum mics in a room. I mean, 
it always ends up with the close drums and stuff, you know. And mm. I can, you know, I can always with the best reverb. It sounds I can never get. I've never got a drum sound with mics scattered around the room. To be honest with you, never ever. That's surprising coming from you. No, seriously. I know, yeah. I've tried it, and it doesn't do anything. I lift it up, and it sounds like, you know. It's muddy. This it, is muddy. it doesn't do anything, yeah. I, you know? And you've got this time thing and the phase. Thing. It's, you know, <laughs> drums to me are just up there, you know. Mm -hmm. in, in your face. So the last instrument you would put on would be the bass. But Yeah, I get, I'd work, this, work a rough sound on the bass, but it's really the last thing. I know, it where, I know where it goes, right? So I pull it back out and start with the drums. Right? I always start with the drums. Then what? Why? Then I bring in uh, guitars, maybe. Uh, then keyboards, and then the bass is the last thing that comes in. And the bass is always the electrically the loudest thing on the record because I'm, I'm watching that. You have to work on VUs, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. And so when Paul would play bass and sing, I mean, he'd play bass and sing live, right? It's on the, the earlier time, stuff. The early stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I didn't recall that at that time because Norman Smith was right. doing that. But, but you know, Paul used to go, see, Paul, Paul was into sort of a cl classical music. And I think that sort of got, because I know we both used to, as young kids, like the Brandenburg Concertos, right? Sure. And, and, I, and when he met up with Jane Asher and stuff, there was that classical sort of music thing because of her family. But when Paul... I, it must have been Pepper. Look, this that was Pepper. On the basic rhythm tracks, when we recorded, I don't think we recorded the bass. The bass was never there. And Paul would, even if he did, would go away and three days later come in with the bass part, where he'd given it a lot of thought. And then Richard and I on, on Pepper, I used to bring the bass amp out into the middle of number two. The others had gone. And I used to mic it with a C12 tube mic about four or five foot away from the bass amp uh, on figure of eight. Um, and Paul would spend about three or four hours doing playing the bass part, and Richard might say, "No, pull that note out, make it louder and louder." <laughs> no, seriously, really. And he used to play his heart out. I mean, sometimes his, his fingers would be bleeding. I mean, he re he really the, the concentration on doing those bass parts was enormous. And you can hear it. I mean, listen to every from from Day Tripper and Paperback Writer yeah. on and on. It's getting more complex. The counter yes. harmonies that he's playing. Well, I mean, if you when you watch him live now, you know, doing it's his amazing. stage, he's singing this thing, and, and all the all the bass stuff's completely different to what he's singing. I mean, I mean, I know over the years, it obviously it's easy to do, but to say that at yeah, the beginning, no, it's, it's not. We we have our little band, and our bass player says, "Do you know we we wanted to do like." Paperback writer said, "Do you know how hard this? Is? I'm not even singing. I'm just trying to play the bass. Do you? I'm not yeah. a great bass, but I'm good. This is incredible. Yeah. Trying to get it right and not screw up, not yeah. to like slow down or speed up once. And this guy's singing and telling jokes and dancing for three hours. Yeah. He goes, you can't. As great as it is, if you if you try to play this instrument and nothing but, you can't imagine how much more this guy's doing. And it, it is. It's no, it is. It is. It really is. When you analyze it like that, people don't realize." And he makes it look so easy. That's no, unbelievable. I, I convinced, I told Andrew, I said, look, I know it's expensive, and I know he wants to bring his beautiful lady. I said this, you will, there's no money that you could spend that would be more worth seeing a live performance mm -hmm. and seeing yeah. Paul in this band. And no, Brian right. Ray was here a few weeks right. ago when right, he's in right. town. I love him dearly. Oh, he's yeah, a dear Brian's friend. Right. Yeah. And like he said, you know, I sometimes, I, I said, you're playing the bass parts that this man played that are, it's not that they're known, they're in our DNA. Yes. If you even miss the feel of it, we'll know it. And, you know, he's playing, he's being Paul. Well, you talking about that, I mean, I'm going to reiterate now back onto the remake of, of the Pepper album because yeah. of, as far as I'm concerned, the, the artistic, you know, the, 
influence and input that I put into it is not there anymore. And if you listen to it with what you've just said, that the artistic way that bass or any instrument sits, which was a sculptured art piece, is just not there. It's gone. Really? Yeah, I mean, we, we you know we feel every note, every nuance in that album because it's we know it's iconic for fifty years. You know, you can hear like a half a second of any track and you know what it is. You know, exactly every minute of it. But now it's all that's just gone out the window. You know, when you when you first heard it, what what was the biggest? What was the I I, re, I refused to hear it. You the, didn't. I, the only thing that I noticed someone played me a day in the life. Yeah, and you know the maraca on day in the life. Yeah, little it's louder than the vocal. So what's more important, John's vocal or the maraca? Why is the maraca louder than the vocal? Why not? You know, the texture of the original was set a certain way. Right. It's just like, well, you know, but yeah, I don't know if you've noticed that. John's right. sort of singing behind the maraca. So, yeah, I noticed the, uh, like, the hi-hat is much, much... Yeah, because I keep adding treble to the drum... To all the drum tracks are mono, right? So they keep right. adding more treble, more treble, more treble, more treble. And I believe they've added a lot of low bass to the bass track, so it sounds a bit more like disco and... It's, it's unbelievable. I don't want to even go there. I understand. No, no you paint a masterpiece, like you said. You don't want to... George Massenberg emailed me the other day, right? And Explain he said, who George Massenberg is. Tell them. Well, George Massenberg's yeah. a really, really famous recording right. engineer. He teaches at a university now in Canada, and he's down there for the AES. He emailed me. He said, you know, I've been, we started to play the surround sound of Sergeant Pepper to the students. And he said, I had to take it off. It's tragic. So I emailed him back, and I said, well, tragic's not the word. Yeah, and two two other engineers have said the same thing down here. So if I want to, my goal would be to have a pristine vinyl mono mono uh, Sergeant Pepper's. Yeah, that's the holy grail. That's what we should look for. Yeah, the one the, this the definitive version of the mono. Forget the stereo. It was designed for mono, and every track was monitored mono through one loudspeaker. That's how it was structured and designed. And the what I now play is the mono CD, the original mono CD. Jeff Emmerich, my special guest. And Jeff, I could keep you here for all day because every moment of this like just fills my heart and I love sharing it with Andrew. Oh, it's great it was, talking with you on this. Starting you know? this. When we all right, last part. By the time we get to Abbey Road, right. are you happy with the stereo balance with the mix and the sound? See, I, right. there's only a stereo so but what happened with the Abbey Road album, we'd uh, they brought in the new T G mixing console, which is the first transistorized mixing console. And we're now on eight track, a Studer eight track. Um, which is, you know, the, the tracks obviously are narrower than, you know, because we're used to the, the quarter inch, I guess. On, on, so it went for eight track, 16 track. I think we're on 16 track. Or I can't remember now, maybe an eight, eight track. And could we, so we've got the new transistorized mixing console. So, of course, we start recording the album, and I can't get the same bass drum sound, oh, the same totally snare sound, right? Totally different. Because of the transistors. So everyone's down in the mouth for like three days. Well, can't we get the old mixing console back in? You know, we can't get the same punch. Well, it is impossible. You couldn't do that. So, we, you know, we, we resigned ourselves to the fact this is the desk we're going to use. And it gave me the luxury of selectable equalization on every fader, a compressor and limiter on every fader. Uh, it was luxury for me. So it's a little bit more organic sounding, right. a little bit more softer in texture. It's, it is softer. And you know what? The, the music follows it. Correctly, no, it does. But the Sun, you know, and that's what I've always said on the air. The Sun King, yes, medley wouldn't have sounded right on your old board. No, I, I, was, gonna, I was just going to say that because had we had the old board for the Abbey Road album, the first rhythm track would have had the punch in it, right? And yeah. all the overdubs would have had even more punch to complement the, the first track. So the album would have been completely different. So I'm glad what you just said because that makes so much sense. 
It, uh, Paul's bass is completely different. That boom, yes. boom, boom. Yeah, it, yeah. it isn't punchy. And if uh, if you had a punchy bass on Come Together, the song's completely different. Right. See, I mean, the freak, because of selectable equalization and so forth, I could put low, low, the low, more low end into the bass and, and not you know, and change change it to 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 fit complement the rest of the instruments, which were a lot lot sort of softer. No, it's a beautiful, beautiful balance all the yeah, way yeah. through to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Emmerich, yeah. I cannot, cannot thank you enough for coming by. He took a day out of a day out of his life yeah, yeah. to come up to Q1043. Yeah. That's great. You are welcome anytime. What you share with us, to me, brings us deeper into the music. It gives us a new way to listen. It opens your ears and your mind. Right, and I, I tell you, I was, which I, I was going to say earlier on, when I started at EMI, we were we were put onto classical sessions as, as well as pop sessions as, as youngsters, as assistant engineers. And although the classical sessions weren't as much fun, we, we were there when we recorded operas straight to stereo and with Maria Callas or Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. And you'd be in the studio and you'd get the emotion and the, the, the feel and these, these incredible conductors who draw as much emotion out of the orchestra and shout at the orchestra. And, and, but that, that feeling of the, no, you know what can be done emotionally with music, you sort of carry through with you all your life because you can apply it to pop music because you know there's more can come out of this than what's being given because of the classical training, you know? Brilliant, and that's what you brought into Studio yeah. 2 yeah. with the Beatles. Yes. Jeff Emmerich, you can follow him on Instagram, at Jeff Emmerich. That's G-E-O-F-F-E-M-E-R-I-C-K, at Jeff Emmerich. And what's your latest project? What do we work on? I've been working with a, with a band, and believe it or not, I've been working with uh, Jack Douglas. Oh, we love Jack. Yes, and we've, we've finished mixing an album in uh, LAFX Studios in Burbank. And using an old API mixing console and went mixed it to half inch analog and it sounds awesome. Oh, you're very American now. You didn't say it sounds fantastic. No. You said it sounds awesome. No, well I'm American now. Yeah. You are. Yeah. By the way, quick Jack Douglas story. He told me that he was teaching a graduate class. I think where is it at USC or right. yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, so, so what's a graduate producing class? Yeah. And he laughed and he he said, let's get a drink. I'll tell you. And, <laughs> and he said, okay, here's what we do. Andrew, did I ever tell you the story? Yo, know, Jack Douglas, who did John John Lennon, he did Happy Christmas and all the Lennon albums. He said, "What's a graduate like producing class?" He hires a band, and their assignment, the the guy, person's assignment, is to make a finished track with the band. And he tells the band while they're recording to get into a fight and quit and walk out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's the cruelest thing to do. And he goes, goes "Look, I, the, I'll what mic, a tube mic or whatever. That's anybody will figure that out." Your, your job as a producer, when the band quits, your job is to get a finished track. I said, it's like Star Trek, like the Kobayashi Maru. The, right, right. The, that's, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That's cruel, but brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Emmerich, thanks right. so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks, that's great, really, Ken. Ken Dash, yeah, one final note. I'm just so sad that I won't get to see Jeff Emmerich again, at least on this earth, on this plane. We don't get to share music or share stories. But there's no doubt that creative energy keeps on going. That's how I feel in my heart. He has to work on a project up there. I don't know. I assume John Lennon needs him. George needs him. George Martin needs him. And someday I'd like to see him again in another plane and we get to keep talking and listen to music. Jeff, thank you for being my friend.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.